Hi everyone, welcome once again to Dan 1132. This is episode 101. Uh, I'm Jim Woodavine. It's good to be here with you once again for the 101st episode of the podcast. In this episode, I want to talk about something that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time, but I haven't been able to put the material together in such a way as to make a coherent episode or series of episodes because there's just so much involved and there's so many different ways in which I could come at this this subject. But over the past week, I've been reading a book. And for those of you watching on Rumble, I'll uh, show it to you here. It's called Serious Adverse Events, An Uncensored History of AIDS. And the author of this book is Celia Farber. And this book really helped me to kind of uh, think about a number of issues that I've already been considering and how to put them together. And it's still probably going to be somewhat disorganized or I'd be writing a book of my own, but uh, I'm going to do my best. And uh, this will probably be the first of several episodes on this subject, because I believe it's an important one for a number of reasons. And that's uh, the relationship of the AIDS crisis, between quotation marks, uh, of the early 1980s, started in the early 1980s, and the current situation, the uh, the COVID situation, which is uh, seems to be on the comeback once again as we're entering into flu season. So it's something that we're going to have to consider yet again, and we're going to have to uh, look to the past to learn and to grow and to move forward if we're not going to make the same mistakes again as a society. Now, this book, uh, Serious Adverse Events, An Uncensored History of AIDS, which I highly recommend, by the way, if you can find a copy of this book, I highly recommend that you uh, that you do pick it up. I found it in a thrift store of all places. Every once in a while, you find a gem, and uh, I found a couple of gems over the past week. This uh, past couple of weeks, this book was originally published in 2006, and it was uh, made up of a bunch of writings, a a series of articles that were published prior, in years prior to 2006, after uh, a long struggle uh, on behalf of the author who wrote for uh, various publications and wrote a lot about uh, issues surrounding HIV and AIDS. Uh, the book was republished in 2023 with a new foreword by Mark Crispin Miller. And if you find books with forwards by Mark Crispin Miller or by Mark Crispin Miller, or you see him online, I highly recommend his work as well. He's someone who thinks deeply and thinks outside the box, uh, is not someone who just falls in line with the consensus. And uh, that's a very good thing. Is uh, He's everything that a, a journalist should really be as Celia Farber is. And so highly recommended this work. But the question is how to, uh, for me anyways, how to approach this issue and where to start. And one of the places where I want to start is with two people, looking at two people in particular. And these people are Peter Duisberg and uh, the second one is Carrie Mullis. But before doing that, I want I want you to just take a look at these commercials from the 1980s. Now, if you're my age, I'm 52, you'll remember these commercials from your youth, and you'll remember the AIDS crisis as it became uh, an international news story, and as as the fear-mongering grew out of control, 
Now, since that time, it has uh, it has faded. It's still there, but it's nothing like it was in the 1980s. Uh, if uh, if you recall that, people were afraid to use public washrooms. Rules in sports began to change when when uh, somebody got cut. They, uh, I know, in rugby. For example, they had to go into the blood bin. They said so they had to get out of the out of the game in hockey and various other sports. The same thing happened. There was a lot of fear about transmission of HIV of the AIDS virus between quotation marks, and that fear was uh, was fomented. It was only encouraged by the news media, and it was encouraged by uh, government agencies. Which all of this sounds very familiar, and. Uh, uh, take a look at these uh, at these commercials. Just uh, perhaps for those of you who are younger, uh, this will be something new for you. For those of you who are around my age, you'll you'll remember these. At first, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. That if not stopped, it could kill more Australians than World War II. But AIDS can be stopped, and you can help stop it. If you have sex, have just one safe partner, or always use condoms. Always. There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. It is a deadly disease, and there is no known cure. The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. Anyone can get it, man or woman. So far, it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading. So protect yourself. And read this leaflet when it arrives. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. In high school, Mark never worried about getting dates. He just did. He never worried about making school teams. He just did. He never worried about getting good grades. He just did. And he never worried about getting AIDS. He just did. Take a good look. Before AIDS kills him, it can give him a fever that won't go away. Purple sores that won't go away. And then maybe pneumonia or a brain tumor or something even worse that won't go away. Then finally, he'll go away. That's all. This is AIDS. Look at it. You get AIDS by having sex or sharing a needle with someone who has the AIDS virus. So don't. Don't ask for AIDS. Don't get it. So these these commercials weren't the only thing that was uh, was out there promoting the or, per, or or trying to whip up 
a frenzy of, of fear and concern over HIV and AIDS. Uh, some examples, and these are, are from Celia Farber's book. First of all, Oprah Winfrey, uh, a renowned scientific expert, predicted in 1987 that one in five heterosexuals could be dead from AIDS at the end of the next three years. So by 1990, one in five heterosexuals could be dead from AIDS by the end of the next three years. Uh, there was a vast campaign to convince the heterosexual community that AIDS does not discriminate. And that's really that really can be seen in, in those public service announcements. But it turned out to be a politically correct but factually bankrupt AIDS speak, according to Celia Farber. 25 years after the first AIDS cases appeared, it still remains contained for the most part among the initial risk groups. And so we'll see some of those statistics uh, shortly. But another quotate, quotation from that time frame, 1987, Teresa Crenshaw, she was a, a member of the President's Commission on AIDS. And she said, if the spread of AIDS continues at this rate, in 1996, there could be 1 billion people infected. Five years later, hypothetically, 10 billion people. However, the population of the world is only 5 billion. Could we be facing the threat of extinction during our lifetime, even before our children are grown? Wow, so, so the, uh, the threat is that this virus is going to kill 10 billion people, twice the population of planet Earth. Well, when, while all of this was going on, while people like uh, somebody whose name you, you just might recognize, people like Anthony Fauci and Robert Gallo were uh, making hay with HIV and AIDS. There were voices in the wilderness that were speaking out against this newly developed industry and everything that it stood for and were questioning the consensus science. And one of them was a man named Peter Duisberg. And I'm going to open up his Wikipedia entry because it's also uh, a revelation, we can say. And, and we'll see that also as we look at Kerry Mullis's Wikipedia entry. Peter Duisberg, born in 1936, a German-American molecular biologist, professor of molecular and cell biology at the University of California, Berkeley. He is known for his early research into the genetic, genetic aspects of cancer. He is a proponent of AIDS denialism, the claim that HIV does not cause AIDS. So if you're not familiar that HIV is the virus, AIDS is the condition that supposedly results from this virus. So human immunodeficiency virus and acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So there, there are two different things, HIV and AIDS. The, the consensus science said that HIV causes AIDS or will lead to the development of AIDS. Peter Duisberg said, no, AIDS does not come from, or the evidence doesn't clearly point out that HIV causes AIDS. There's some other reason uh, behind the development or the appearance of this syndrome, especially among male homosexuals. Now, the, the article in Wikipedia goes on to say, Duisberg received acclaim early in his career for research on oncogenes and cancer. 
With Peter K. Voigt, he reported in 1970 that a cancer-causing virus of birds had extra genetic material compared with non-cancer-causing viruses, hypothesizing that this material contributed to cancer. At the age of 36, Duisberg was awarded tenure at the University of California, Berkeley, and at 49, he was elected to the National Academy of Sciences. So uh, a respected uh, scientist uh, who received tenure at the age of 36. That's uh, uh, pretty impressive. Uh, and then he also received an outstanding investigator grant from the National Institutes of Health in 1986. From 1986 to 1987, he was a Fogarty Scholar in Residence, at the NIH laboratories in Bethesda, Maryland. So up until uh, 1986, 1987, widely respected, widely praised, received the uh, the kudos and accolades from his colleagues and from the scientific establishment. Now, what happened? Well, Wikipedia goes on to say he was long considered a contrarian by his scientific colleagues. He began to gain public notoriety with a March 1987 article on cancer in cancer research entitled Retroviruses as Carcinogens and Pathogens, Expectations and Reality. In this and subsequent writings, Duisberg proposed his hypothesis that AIDS is caused by long-term consumption of recreational drugs or antiretroviral drugs, and that the retrovirus known as HIV is a harmless passenger virus. In contrast, the scientific consensus is that HIV infection causes AIDS. Duisberg's HIV-AIDS have been addressed and rejected as erroneous by the scientific community. Reviews of his opinions in Nature and Science uh, journals asserted that they were unpersuasive and based on selective reading of the literature, and that although Duisberg had a right to a dissenting opinion, his failure to fairly review evidence that HIV causes AIDS meant that his opinion lacked credibility. So the consensus opinion is that Duisberg is out to lunch, and he is a proponent of AIDS denialism. Now, Duisberg published a book in the 1990s called The Invention of AIDS, I believe it's the, is the title, or The Invention of the AIDS, uh, Inventing the AIDS Virus is the title of the book. It's out of print. Uh, it was published in 1996 by Regnery Publishing, which is a, a conservative a publishing house in the United States. Uh, so Duisberg published this book, and there was a foreword written by Carrie Mullis. Now let's look at take a look at Carrie Mullis. And you've probably heard of Carrie Mullis over the past few years. Uh, he was the inventor or the developer or what have you of the PCR test, the polymerase, I think polymerase, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, chain reaction technique. So Carrie Banks Mullis, again to Wikipedia, uh, born in 1944, died in 2019, was an American biochemist. In recognition of his role in the invention of the polymerase chain reaction uh, PCR technique, he shared the 1993 Nobel Prize in Chemistry with Michael Smith and was awarded the Japan Prize in the same year. PCR became a central technique in biochemistry and molecular biology, described by the New York Times as highly original and significant, virtually dividing biology into the two epochs of before PCR and after PCR. All right, now we get to the controversies about Carrie Mullis. 
Mullis also downplayed humans' role in climate change and expressed doubts that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS. So he did not, uh, did not agree, or he, he wasn't convinced uh, by the arguments of Peter Duisburg that AIDS was caused primarily by the use of certain drugs in the homosexual population and, and their behaviors. Uh, those drugs are amyl nitrates, also known as poppers. If you want to look into that, and you can, you can uh, see what those drugs were all about and why they became popular in the male homosexual community. Uh, so he, I'll just repeat that because in the context of the next sentence, uh, you can see what the, uh, the, the writers of the article are, are, are doing here, and you'll see that later on as well. Mullis also downplayed humans' role in climate change and expressed doubts that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS. He also expressed a belief in the paranormal. So these things are, are put beside each other as if they're equivalent to each other. So uh, this kind of says what kind of person he was. Well, he was a nut. He believed in the paranormal. Uh, therefore, he's also a nut who, who uh, expressed doubts that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS and uh, downplayed humans' roles in climate change. Mullis's work in advocating for topics completely unrelated to his Nobel Prize has been cited as an example of the trend known as the Nobel disease. And we'll take a look at the Nobel disease shortly after we finish looking at Kerry Mullis. So keep that in mind. He's advocating for topics, they say, completely unrelated to his Nobel Prize. Well, I would argue that it's not completely unrelated to his Nobel Prize. Uh, as a biochemist, as the developer of the PCR test, which was also instrumental in, uh, the, in uh, testing for HIV, uh, he's, it's hardly unrelated to his area of expertise. Now, we'll continue on to his career, PCR, and other inventions. Accreditation of the PCR uh, technique. And then finally here, uh, view on HIV, views on HIV, AIDS, and climate change. In his 1998 autobiography, Mullis expressed disagreement with the scientific evidence supporting climate change and ozone depletion. And as and asserted his belief in astrology. Now, once again, just look at that sentence. In his 1998 autobiography, Mullis expressed disagreement with the scientific evidence supporting climate change and ozone oh, depletion. Oh, and by the way, he asserted his belief in astrology. Uh, you can see what's happening here as those things once again are conflated. But it continues, he claimed that climate change and HIV AIDS theories were promulgated as a form of racketeering by environmentalists, government agencies, and scientists attempting to preserve their careers and earn money. Mullis said science was being harmed by the never-ending quest for more grants and staying with established dogmas, and that science is being practiced by people who are dependent on being paid for what they are going to find out not for what they actually produce. The New York Times listed Mullis as one of several scientists who, after success in their area of research, go on to make unfounded, sometimes bizarre statements in other areas. Well, unfounded, according to some, bizarre in the opinion of others. Mullis also questioned the scientific validity of the link between HIV and AIDS, despite never having done any scientific research on either subject. 
leading some researchers to call him an AIDS denialist. And that, that term comes back again, AIDS denialist. He wrote that he began to question the AIDS consensus while writing an NIH grant progress report and being unable to find a peer-reviewed reference that HIV was the cause of AIDS. He published an alternative hypothesis for AIDS in 1994, claiming that AIDS is an arbitrary diagnosis used when HIV antibodies are found in a patient's blood. Seth Kalikman, AIDS researcher and author of Denying AIDS, names Mullis among the who's who of AIDS pseudoscientists. You disagree with me? Therefore, you may have won a Nobel Prize. You may be uh, one of the uh, smartest uh, genius, what well, you know, a genius uh, in in the sciences. But now you have become a pseudoscient a pseudoscientist because you don't stand with the consensus. Mullis was often cited in the press as a supporter of molecular biologist and AIDS denialist Peter Duisberg. According to California Magazine, Mullis's HIV skepticism influenced Thabo Mbeki's denialist policymaking throughout his tenure as president of South Africa from 1999 to 2008, contributing to as many as 330,000 unnecessary deaths. So, again, you can see the, the, the bias all throughout this article, which is not surprising given the fact that it's Wikipedia, but the, the citations the way things are, are put together, and the, the claim that uh, Thabo Mbebeke's denialist policymaking led to 330,000 unnecessary deaths, well, that also needs to be questioned, needs to be looked into, and not just accepted at face value. And this is one of the things that, it, that in doing this research, in going through this material and looking at the historical evidence, I need to, to emphasize the fact that we cannot and we must not simply take at face value the, the kinds of results that we find or the, or the kinds of information and material that we find in sources that are anything but unbiased. And as you follow the line, you follow the trail to where this information comes from, you'll find out that uh, a great deal of this information comes from people who have a whole lot to gain from denying the work of the denialists. So let's just take a look here at uh, AIDS denialism. Uh, just just to, to go back to the Kerry Mullis article again. Uh, so it says he expressed doubts that HIV is the sole cause of AIDS. And there's a a hyperlink on that phrase, and it leads to HIV AIDS denialism. So you're a science denier, you're a COVID denier, you're an HIV AIDS denier or denialist. You are equivalent to a Holocaust denier. And that's basically the way this language is being used. Again, the use of language being so very, very important. So what is HIV-AIDS denialism? Well, according to Wikipedia, once again, it's the belief, despite conclusive evidence to the contrary, again, the scientific consensus, which you can't question, that the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, does not cause acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS. Some of its proponents reject the existence of HIV, 
while others accept that HIV exists, but argue that it is a harm harmless passenger virus and not the cause of AIDS. Insofar as they acknowledge AIDS as a real disease, they attribute it to some combination of sexual behavior, recreational drugs, malnutrition, poor sanitation, hemophilia, or the, effect, or the effects of the medications used to treat HIV infection, antiretrovirals. And one medication that comes to mind in particular is AZT. Uh, and if you recognize that name, the name of that drug, you'll also recognize a connection with one Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was integral. He's right in the middle of things uh, since 1984. So the scientific consensus, this article on HIV AIDS denialism, uh, says the scientific consensus is that the evidence showing HIV to be the cause of AIDS is conclusive and that HIV AIDS denialist claims are pseudoscience based on conspiracy theories, faulty reasoning, cherry picking, and misrepresentation of mainly outdated scientific data. So, Again, loaded language, just, just a tad loaded language. Conspiracy theories and pseudoscience uh, for a couple of them. So pseudoscientists that are engaged in, in conspiracy theories. With the rejection of these arguments by the scientific community, HIV AIDS denialist material is now targeted at less scientifically sophisticated audiences and spread mainly through the internet. So I'm not a scientifically sophisticated person, uh, and I am talking about this on the internet. So I guess this, uh, this fits right in. Despite its lack of scientific acceptance, HIV-AIDS denialism has had a significant political impact, especially in South Africa, under the presidency of Tavo Mubeki. Scientists and physicians have raised alarm at the human cost of HIV-AIDS denialism, which encourages HIV-positive people or discourages HIV-positive people from using proven treatments. Public health researchers have attributed 330,000 to 340,000 AIDS-related deaths, along with 171,000 other HIV infections and 35,000 infant HIV infections, to the South African government's former embrace of HIV-AIDS denialism. Where those numbers come from is a good question. How they... Uh, arrived at those figures? Who knows? The interrupted use of antiretroviral treatments is also a major global concern as it potentially increases the likelihood of the emergence of antiretroviral resistant strains of the virus. So they go into the history uh, and talk about the uh, two scientists who uh, discovered the uh, HIV virus, Luc Montagnier and uh, Robert Gallo. And uh, there's a lot of controversy about that. And there's some books uh, available uh, about Robert Gallo, about Luc Montagnier, about their connection with the National Institutes of Health and also with Anthony Fauci, uh, which have a lot of parallels with what we've heard and experienced over the last few years. Uh, and I'm not going to get into more detail about this denial that but the they go into the denialists claims and scientific evidence and perhaps at a later time i'll get into that but right now i want to look at one other related 
Wikipedia entry, and this is on Nobel disease. Because uh, you might remember that Kerry uh, Mullis was, uh, is one of the people that was uh, referred to as having Nobel disease. Well, what is that? Nobel disease, it's not a real disease, obviously, or Nobelitis is the embracing of strange or scientifically unsound ideas by some Nobel Prize winners, usually later in life. It has been argued that the effect results in part from a tendency for Nobel winners to feel empowered by the award to speak on topics outside their specific area of expertise, although it is unknown whether Nobel Prize winners are more prone to this tendency than other individuals. Paul Nurse, co-winner of the 2001 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, warned later laureates against believing you are an expert in almost everything and being prepared to express opinions about most issues with great confidence, sheltering behind the authority that the Nobel Prize could give you. Nobel disease has been described as a tongue-in-cheek term. Well, let's go down to the winners reported as examples of Nobelitis and Nobel disease. Charles Richet, he won the 1913 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his research on anaphylaxis. He also believed in extrasensory perception, paranormal activity, dowsing, and ghosts. All right. Uh, I'm not sure how one uh, would necessarily uh, make the other less valuable or that this would be him speaking outside of his area of expertise because none of that has anything to do with the issue of anaphylaxis. So regardless of his beliefs on the paranormal or extra extrasensory things, that doesn't take away from his work as a scientist. The second one I think is, uh, is more interesting yet, and that's Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling won two Nobel Prizes. So he won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1954 for his work on chemical bonds. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1962 for his peace activism. So two Nobel Prizes for two very different things. Now, obviously, he was a, a man who was not just holed up in his laboratory doing, uh, doing experiments. So he did that, that, uh, that important work in chemistry and also uh, involved in uh, international relations and uh, working for the cause of peace. A decade before winning the first prize, he was diagnosed with Bright's disease. And he treated it in part by ingesting vitamin supplements, which he claimed dramatically improved his condition. He later espoused taking high doses of vitamin C to reduce the likelihood and severity of experiencing the common cold. Pauling himself consumed amounts of vitamin C on a daily basis that were more than 120 times the recommended daily intake. He further argued that megadoses of vitamin C have therapeutic value for treating schizophrenia and for prolonging cancer patients' lives. These claims are not supported by the best available science. And I've looked into, in the past, I've looked into Linus Pauling and, and his work on vitamin C, and, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of it, but I know that one of the things that he was looking for was further research and good solid research on these uh, the, the, the effects of vitamins, in particular vitamin C, on health and health conditions. William Shockley, next on the list, won the 1956 Nobel Prize in Physics, for his invention of the transistor, he promoted racialism and eugenics. Well, 
then he's in uh, a lot of company. I was going to say good company, but it's not really good company, obviously. He has a lot of company in the scientific community, especially from that era and uh, and before, uh, in promoting racialism and eugenics. Uh, many of them have been mentioned here on various episodes of the podcast. James Watson, 1962 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine with Francis Crick and Maurice Wilkins for their, dis- their discoveries concerning the molecular structure of nucleic acids. Uh, since 2000, he has consistently and publicly claimed that black people are inherently less intelligent than white people and that exposure to sunlight in tropical regions and higher levels of melanin cause dark-skinned people to have a higher sex drive, all right? Seem to be fairly strange uh, opinions, but uh, I'm not aware any of any more context of that. And some more uh, people that are mentioned, Nicholas Tinbergen, uh, he promoted uh, holding therapy for autism. Brian Josephson, Nobel Prize for Physics in 1973, promoted uh, the homeopathic notion that water can somehow remember the chemical properties of substances diluted within it, the view that transcendental meditation is helpful for bringing unconscious traumatic memories into conscious awareness, and the possibility that humans could communicate with each other by telepathy. Again, some kind of fringe ideas, uh, and uh, I think the transcendental meditation, also a religious idea specifically, uh, but Again, outside of the mainstream, to be sure, but can we say that this is uh, him speaking about something outside of his area of uh, education? He had a Nobel Prize in physics. So this idea of the physics of water and chemical properties, who knows? Uh, The other one, Kerry Mullis, won the 1993 Nobel Prize in chemistry for developing the PCR test. Mullis disagreed with the accepted and scientifically verified view that AIDS is caused by HIV. Well, obviously, he questioned whether or not that was actually scientifically verified, and other scientists have questioned the same thing. So again, we get back to that consensus view of science. You can't question the consensus. And then finally on the list is Luc Montagné. who co-discovered HIV in 1980. So it's interesting that he also comes up on this list. He won the 2008 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. In 2009, he claimed that solutions containing the DNA of pathogenic bacteria and viruses could emit low-frequency radio waves that induce surrounding water molecules to become arranged into nanostructures. So this uh, seems to have something to do with Brian Josephson's uh, theories as well. So he suggested water could retain such properties even after the original solutions were massively diluted to the point where the original DNA had effectually effectively vanished and that water could retain the memory of substances with which it had been in contact. Claims that places work in close alignment with the pseudoscientific tenets of homeopathy. And it goes on. He has supported the scientifically credit, discredited view, again, scientifically discredited view, that vaccines cause autism and has, compl- has claimed that antibiotics are of therapeutic value in the treatment of autism. So that's uh, a little bit about Kerry Mullis and his uh, denialism and also Peter Duisberg and his denialism. But I think what we see here and what we see in these, uh, these 
write-ups or uh, on Wikipedia and, and in any other kind of mainstream place, what we encounter is that loaded language, the speaking about the scientific consensus, the idea that anyone who dissents from the consensus opinion is some kind of wacko or nut job and must you know must be someone who also believes in poltergeists and and ghosts appearing and and what have you and and should not be taken seriously whereas up until that point they had been taken very seriously indeed but the minute they step outside of the bounds of where they're supposed to be well then that's where the problems come and, and you and I as uh, scientifically uh, unschooled to a certain extent people who who haven't got the those letters behind our name the bsc behind our name or or whatever the masters or doctorate uh, we 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 can't actually even have opinions on this or question the results the assured results of science between quotation marks so i'm going to stop here for this time and uh for this episode and i'm going to continue this the lord willing i'll continue the discussion next week i'll get into some more detail about Kerry Mullis and Peter Duisberg, and also uh, some more material from uh, the Uncensored History of AIDS, Serious Adverse Events by Celia Farber. So we'll continue with this discussion next week, and uh, I hope this was a, a good, at least a good beginning uh, to this discussion, and that it will lead to a greater understanding of what I believe is a very clear connection or continuation of trends that we need to be aware of. Uh, we need to know our history. We need to understand what's happened in the past and how those things continue to happen and why they happen in order to be good, critical thinkers, especially as we see perhaps the door opening up for the flu season in the fall for a rerun of what we've been experiencing over the past few years so that, uh, as uh, the WHO said, Famously, we won't get fooled again. So until next time, may God bless you and may God help us all to, in the words of Daniel 11, verse 32, be people who know our God and knowing our God, stand firm and take action.